I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's podcast carries on where we left off after the State of the Reinsurance Market special episode, which was released after Monte Carlo. We already knew this renewal was going to be difficult, but the subsequent intervention of Hurricane Ian stiffened reinsurers' resolve further. The result was a bruising and often frustrating encounter. You should already know the headline numbers by now. Dedicated reinsurance capital shrank by the most since the global financial crisis of 2008. Global property catastrophe pricing was up 37%, the largest one-one increase since 1992. And there was a 50% increase in retro pricing, which means this highest echelon of reinsurance is now 165% more expensive than in 2017. The aim of this podcast is to put all of this into historical context, ask the big questions about who the winners and losers were, and to examine what the change means for the 2023 outlook and the long-term strategic direction of the market and those who invest in it. To help me, I have representatives from three of the top four reinsurance broking groups. Brokers are always the first to market with information. Carriers come with their take on renewals far later. So with these three, I have all the angles covered for now. David Preeb is chairman of Guy Carpenter and brings experience and a global market view that few can match. Although James Vickers, chairman of Gallagher International, should feel he is a peer. Finally, David Flandreau, head of analytics at Howden, brings his unique research-focused mind to bear and to give us a bigger macro take on what has been happening. A quick note, you must read Gallagher and Howden's respective 1-1 reports as an essential accompaniment to this podcast. Both are hugely informative and insightful and are wholly complementary to each other. Links to both are in the notes. This was a bit more work than usual, but I really enjoyed my three interviews and the subsequent time spent blending this highly accomplished trio's thoughts together. I think it brings the renewals to life and will be useful for anyone wanting to navigate the reset markets of 2023. Enjoy the podcast. After such a dramatic and complicated renewal, I think it would be helpful to let each of my interviewees set the scene before we go into much more detail. Here's James Vickers with a really good summary. It's been a very difficult renewal season and in many ways quite gruelling for all participants, both buyers and reinsurers. And I think the heart of the problem has been that there's been a market reset, not so much on long tail lines, but particularly on short tail lines on property and also in some of the specialty lines, particularly the political violence, terrorism and war side. And whenever there's a market reset, it is difficult for the market to find where the level will be. We have been a little bit surprised, the discussions around Monte Carlo in particular. We knew that the market was going to be a little bit harder and clients' expectations were set to pay some more money and maybe to look at some further restrictions and cover that reinsurers were looking for. But the determination of the reinsurers to stick to that, I think, caught some buyers by surprise. But probably the greatest difficulty we had is that it took such a long time to find the market clearing prices. There were very few reinsurers who were prepared to put out quotes, terms, prices, commit capacity, outline what changes and conditions they wanted. There were very few people who were prepared to do that early. And a lot of people were hanging back, waiting to see what the prices would be. Some of them doing it tactically, some of them thinking the market is hardening. To be fair, a minority doing that tactically, thinking we will do better towards the end of the renewal season. But frankly, a lot of the 
mid-size reinsurers really not quite sure, not quite sure what their retros were going to be, not quite sure what the market clearing prices were going to be. So it was really only in early December that it became clear where the floor might be. So some clients who had traditionally gone early and always expect to go early, they had given firm orders which stalled. Some of those had to be looked at again. And then we had this terrific rush of firm orders all coming at the same time, which actually is not good. It's not good for the market. It's not good for client differentiation. And it doesn't give an appropriate service to buyers. But it was a sign, I think, of the determination of the reinsurers to address, particularly in property lines, what they felt to be in fundamental lack of performance. So a bruising and late renewal amid a difficult reset. Here's David Preeb describing the renewal from Guy Carpenter's perspective. Well, just depending on your perspective, one could say it was the best of times or it was the worst of times. <laughs> in three words, the one one renewals were tenacious. Frustrating at times and very challenging. It was quite the process. Seedants and reinsurers worked to try to find a new market equilibrium in what was a very late and disjointed process. The market started to align around the Christmas break. The quantum of previously unmessaged subjectives in particular sort of pushed signings to the last minute as negotiations with one or two reinsurers could hold up the entire process. But we got there in the end. As reinsurers adjusted their approach, we at Guy Carpenter really worked closely with our clients to prepare for what was, during the entire renewal process, a more detailed technical discussion. Um, And we were looking at multiple strategies and solutions to make sure we had plan A, B, and C in this shifting environment, ultimately to find a pathway to achieve, you know, a viable renewal outcome. Tenacious, frustrating, and very challenging. What adjectives could David Flandro add? It's hard to describe it, you know, with, with one or two words. I mean, seminal, acute, singular, erratic, late, unprecedented. Do we say unprecedented? I don't think we can. Um, but I can still remember one of my mentors telling me, don't use the word unprecedented. It's overused. It can always get worse. Yes, it can. <laughs> yeah. And we, I mean, we have been through things kind of like this before, but it is really quite unique in the context of the last People always years. say late as well. I think yeah. is that just, we've, it's been getting late for years, isn't it? It's just being later and later. Yes, but this year was particularly late, to be sure. And it was late for a good reason, because definitely people yeah. didn't know where they were. I suppose. Is that fair to say that reinsurers didn't have their retro cleared up, and so they didn't quite know what they could be offering? That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's part of what happened. The renewal itself, we can talk about how the renewal played out and what exactly happened, but I think it's really important first to talk about why it happened. If you go back over the last 20 years, and since I've been working in the reinsurance industry, it's really been an interesting ride. And last time we were anywhere near anything like this, I think would have been Hurricane Katrina. After Hurricane Katrina, after the financial crisis, Sandy, Tohoku Fukushima, all that stuff, we saw a period of, actually during that period, we saw a period of elevated rates. And if you look at capital positions in the reinsurance sector back then, they changed quite dramatically. And they continued to change with Solvency two and with the inflow of third-party capital subsequent, say, to Hurricane Sandy, although it was coming in before that. We had a structural change in the market where we became, one one could argue, somewhat overcapitalized. And this coincided with a really big decline in rates from, say, I don't know, 2012 to 2018, 19. That is really 
you know, how we entered COVID. And you and I have spent a lot of time talking about this. Yeah. Obviously, what's happening in the reinsurance market right now isn't just about the reinsurance market. It's about the macro economy. It's about the change in inflation expectations. But crucially, it's about the change in bond pricing. And we don't talk about this very much in the reinsurance sector because it's kind of foreign to us to talk about the asset side. But the asset side is what is driving at least half of this right now. If you look at global high-grade short to medium-duration fixed income securities, they're down by 20% along with the equity market. That hasn't happened in around 40 years. What do reinsurers hold on their balance sheet? They hold short to medium-duration high-grade fixed income securities. So I think one of the most important numbers in the report is actually the capital number. If you look at dedicated reinsurance capital, and it's so important that we measure this accurately and conservatively because it tells us what's going to happen at the next renewal. It's core, it's, there's an inverse correlation between the premiums to surplus Because that's effectively, price. that's just supply, right? That's, that's just supply. supply. And capital supply is down 15.7% by our conservative measurement. And that, that means that we're at a premiums to surplus ratio of above 100% or solvency margin ratio below 100% for the first time since the financial crisis. And really, we've been running you know, below 100% on premiums surplus since after Katrina. So that is a huge change. And it's a macroeconomic change. It's driven by macro fundamentals. But we have to pay attention to that. It's really important to measure capital levels appropriately and accurately. And that's one of the things that we've been doing in the report. Um, it is a huge driver of what happened at the renewal. That's number one. Because that, that's, that's the ground, isn't it? Effectively, that's the ground beneath us. We can't live without capital. That's right. Capital's got more expensive. Exactly. And notionally, some of it's disappeared while, the, while our bonds are marking to market. But hopefully, we'll hold them to duration, and then they'll be, they'll be fine. One hopes so. The second thing that's happening, of course, is just heightened risk premia worldwide. There's a war on, right? And we'll talk, we can talk more about exclusions for Ukraine and everything else in a minute, but that just heightens risk premia generally. The third thing that's happening that's a consequence of the great moderation and certainly COVID and the policies that we had during COVID is inflation. Inflation is happening and that's driving, that, that has driven rates higher in primary lines and commercial lines. It's now driving rates higher in reinsurance lines. And another thing that's happening is more cyclical than secular. And that is that the market went down so much and it got so bifurcated from primary lines that it's now recovering. It's just a big reversion to the mean. So I'm probably missing something, actually. But if you throw all of those elements together, you have a recipe for a renewal where rates are up sharply. Now, given that backdrop, we can talk about reinsurer behavior. We can talk about buyer behavior. But if you don't have that information, then it's really just all inside baseball, in my view. So this is the fundamental weather check. Absolutely. It yeah. was raining, so we got wet. And that's just, we can't really do anything about that. And, yes. and you can't kind of posture your way into a hard market. Yeah. You just fundamentally, if your supply is down 15%, your demand is probably up, is up by, it doesn't really matter by how, by how much it's up, yep. your price is going to have to go up by X. Yeah. And that's what happens. I think so. I think that's a really big part of it that doesn't get talked about enough. A lot more adjectives there. But as you might expect from someone with a research role, a reminder that you simply cannot ignore the core fundamentals of the industry's capital supply situation. Reinsurance may not correlate with many other financial markets, but if capital is having a bad year in general, it still has an impact. So, given this singular backdrop, how did the market perform? Were gaps left, were covers abandoned, and were clients left high and dry? Did the market clear as it should? Here's David Preeb. 
It ultimately cleared properly. And ultimately, I think we were able to achieve the critical coverage requirements that our clients wanted and preserve the integrity of the reinsurance product. There were some reinsurers that were pushing to really limit and narrow the breadth of coverage that they were willing to offer. At the end of the day, the clients focused on three key things. Make sure my structure was correct. Make sure I'm getting the coverage that's critical to manage and operate their business. And quite frankly, they put forth very attractive pricing that ultimately, if I was a reinsurer, I'd say, thank you. I'm looking forward to supporting you going forward. So clients may not have liked the price or the structure, but the market did not fail and they could generally get what they needed. Here's a couple of clips from David Flandre along the same lines. Ultimately, the market cleared and realigned at January 1st. It was a pretty hectic and crooked road getting there with the opening salvos from retro, the late coming reinsurers that we had in many cases, the difficulties in terms of pushback on exclusions. But ultimately, we got there and we cleared. I would say the core integrity of the reinsurance product stayed intact. Don't forget that over the last 10 or 15 years, we have added a lot of things <laughs> into the denominator of the rate online calculation. There was pushback this year to take some of those things back out. In truth, though, the peak perils, the core perils that we wanted to reinsure, certainly in the United States with North Atlantic Basin wind or quake, those types of things are covered. And the reinsurance product maintained its integrity. And let's have the final word on this from James Vickers. I think at the end of the day, it held up reasonably well. And what we found was that the push that some reinsurers were having towards named perils only didn't really succeed. What did happen is that some companies looking to buy more protection right at the top, that might have had to be placed on a named perils basis. But that's probably all right, because at that sort of level, the type of losses that you could imagine that could hit a sort of one in 100, one in 200 level is probably going to be a named perils loss. So at this level, it must either be a hurricane or earthquake, and I can't think of anything else that could do that. Exactly. So I think for most of the secondary peril losses, they managed to still be covered. Now let's have a very quick break to hear from this episode's advertiser, executive search specialist, Bolton Associates. So much has changed in the last few years, not least in Bolton Associates' world of recruiting actuaries and insurance. There is more and more need for actuaries and cap modellers. Demand is outstripping supply. But this is not the first time we've seen this. Bolton Associates has operated in this market for over 20 years. We know what attracts candidates to roles and what matters in this hybrid working world. We're having conversations with firms all needing actuaries, be they syndicates, MGAs, brokers. They need pricing actuaries, heads of capital, reserving specialists. Plus, the larger players looking at restructures are asking us to find group roles, such as CRO, chief actuary and some CFOs. The actuarial skill set really does now reach all levels of the board. In 2022, several senior actuaries took the CEO role, with more to come in 2023, so watch this space. And this is where the Bolton Associates Network comes into play. We can build your actuarial function and also draw on our established network to find those actuaries who have skills not only with numbers, but with leadership, people and specific insurance knowledge. 2023 has many exciting events for Bolton Associates coming up keeping the market linked up, engaged and hopefully having a bit of fun. We're good at what we do because we enjoy what we do. So if you want us to find your elusive actuary, fresh new juniors or hear which firms are looking after their staff, then do get in touch. 
We're on Lime Street, so we're pretty easy to find, unlike that reinsurance pricing actuary you're currently struggling to hire. Let's speak soon. Get in touch at bolton-associates.co.uk. Thanks to Zoe Bolton there, and welcome back. So there's a sense of relief that the market eventually cleared, and cover was available, but of course, at a much higher cost and via structures that were much more favourable to reinsurers. So reinsurers should be very happy. But how happy? How good are these conditions now? I asked all my guests to put this market reset into some context. So here's David Preeb, followed rapidly by James Vickers and David Flandreau. This is probably one of the finest markets that I've seen in my 40 plus years in the business, probably you know one of the most attractive markets that I've experienced. So meaningful changes took place. Retentions moved up. So a lot of the attritional losses no longer going to be subject to the reinsurance contract compared to a year ago. And pricing has moved up quite significantly globally, not just in regions. So a truly attractive market opportunity for reinsurers. There's no doubt that the pricing is much more attractive. I think it's different to post-KRW or post-911, where it was a universal hard market. Everybody got charged more money. What we've seen is differential still by territory, by peril, by client. And that's important because that shows that the market is functioning correctly and trying to look at risks on an individual basis and price them accordingly. So in that regard, I think it's helpful. There's no doubt that with this substantial increase in pricing, it's going to help and it will greatly improve the chances that reinsurers will stay within their NatCap budgets. Whereas the problem for the last few years is that most of them have year on year been blowing their NatCap budgets. If you look at the Howden Global Risk Adjusted Property Catastrophe Rate Online Index from 1992 to 2023, it, it looks very much like a price channel. You can see that we've got these peaks that happen in the 90s. We've got peaks that start to happen in the mid 2000s, and then by the late 2000s, you have sustained higher rates. But then by the teens, you sort of get back to where we were in the late 90s. You know, you've yep. got the decline coming down, and now we're sort of we're back up to where we were certainly post Katrina um, again. So we are there is a, if if you will, it looks like at least on our risk adjusted chart, which we very earnestly try to risk adjust. It looks like there's a very clear channel of pricing over a 20-year or a 30-year period. And we're at the top of it. So we should expect it to start moderate from here, right? I don't know. I don't know that. Um, That would require sector dynamics to change considerably. When we have spikes like this, we don't tend to stay at the peak. We do tend to stay elevated, though, for a while before the market readjusts. And then we have a major price change over a period of about five years. So a generationally strong market opportunity for reinsurers to make money, perhaps even if natural catastrophes continue their bad run. And at the end, there's me jumping the gun as usual. How sustainable is this new pricing level? Have we ascended to a new plateau, or is this a peak that we might start to descend as quickly as we've climbed up? I suspect that we're moving into a bit more of a plateau at the moment, because we weren't in the right place. We were a number of markets were off reinsurers pricing models. They've now come up to their pricing models and I said in some cases they've exceeded it to some extent. Yep. So we are probably within that moving towards that new norm. Reinsurers have managed to move themselves up, pushed companies to retain more. 
But ultimately, the key is going to be how much capital comes into the industry. So, I mean, the industry has not been earning its average weighted uh, cost of capital for a number of years now. And this year, 2023, it would be surprising if it didn't. The question is, you know, how much might it exceed it by? And, you know, if it overshoots very substantially, that could be unsustainable at that level. But let's wait and see. But I do think we're moving into a period where reinsurers will be able to demonstrate to their investors that they're earning their weighted average cost of capital. Really, that capital supply dynamic is really important. So for U.S. property cat, the market did experience a shortage of capacity, which did drive pricing and structures for the riskiest business to levels, which probably weren't necessarily supported by risk-based pricing. And we think as that balance improves, that extreme level of pricing will renormalize. But hedge that with the results that the market's experienced over the past six years, and also the measurement of alternative investment opportunities will continue to weigh on how much capital actually flows in. But I think the market dynamics in pricing, such as the financial performance of the overall financial markets, the changing nature of risk, the how the product aligns, I think we're going to probably be in a period that pricing level will is sustainable, albeit I think the extremes will sort of come off and be more normalized as we move forward. Thanks to James and David Preeb for that. So we have a consensus around things settling on a higher plateau. But both are already alluding to the billion-dollar question. Will new capital come into the market, and will that change the dynamic? Historically, capital influxes have accompanied market changes like the one we've just had. In 1993, 2002 and 2006, billions were raised by incumbents and new startups, helping to ease the pressure and eventually bringing pricing back down to earth. But we all know that this time the pickings have been much, much slimmer. Anyone listening to the State of Reinsurance special episode of this podcast, published in late September 2022 after Monte Carlo, will know that investors have been sceptical of reinsurance opportunities after being taken in by previous false dawns. Given our own relatively poor track record, and the tough state of financial markets globally. Will this reset be enough to get investors back on board? Let's start with David Flandro. Many of us have been out in the market all year in 2000. And you've been trying to raise. Trying to raise capital, that's right. And it's been a real surprise to me because I think we could all feel this coming. We could all feel the renewal. We knew we didn't know exactly how much it was going to be up, but we knew it was going to be a record-breaking renewal, at least in the context of the last decade or so. And it was difficult to raise capital for a couple of reasons. One, of course, was that the rest of the market was melting down. So a lot of these PE investors that were really heavily invested in tech, they were in the process of losing a lot of money in 2022. They just didn't have the same amount of capital that they did before, number one. Number two, if you're talking to the fixed income or the pension fund side of the equation, that the bond market was going down. That was happening concurrently. So it was a really difficult environment for capital raising. But still, I I thought, my goodness, this is uh, certainly one of the most profitable times many of us have seen during our careers. The capital should come in. But actually, I think this is just my impression. I think that now that we're through this renewal, now that we have these numbers and they are defensible, they are large, now that we can show a significant dearth of supply, I think it's natural that we should have some capital coming back in. Post-Ian capital raising at this point in the cycle compared to the last three big events that we've had like that is really small, and the trajectory looks really small so far. So there's certainly scope for capital to come in. And if you're 
if you're an investor and you're looking for a sector that is somewhat uncorrelated to what's happening in the global bond market, say, that has lots of liquidity and prospects for high forward IRRs, then it seems natural that this is a place for capital to flow into it. Absolutely, 2023 should differ from 2022 in terms so, of capital yeah. raising. Everyone was sitting on their, their folding their arms. There was investor fatigue. They'd had enough of us telling mm. this great story all That's the time, right. and because we'd let them down too many times in the past, and it was, seemed to be too easy just to, to lose money in this market. And and now perhaps when they see the physical evidence, mm-hmm. they'll say, "Well, actually, it is. It's worth it's worth a go now, isn't it?" That's right. It's a generational opportunity right now, in my view. Wow. Wow, indeed. A generational opportunity is not a phrase you hear that often. Let's listen to David Preeb and then a brief exchange with James Vickers on the same topic. We think it's a very attractive proposition for investors. I do agree with you that I think investors were in a process of, let me make sure all the talk is real. And quite frankly, based on what we observed, I think the actual outcome was probably even better than some of the original talk. So we thought the, the business was attractive even prior to this 1-1, and it's now even more attractive. Now, the piece that is going to weigh is how does this compare to alternative investments? So with an, an interest rates significantly higher, you know they're going to be weighing those opportunities against the expected returns for insurance risk. And at this pricing level, I think those returns stack up for taking on insurance risk. So it's still a very positive diversifying asset class. Yep. And I think that even though in the past year and a half, you know, we had a financial volatility in the equity markets and also some insurance risks. So the two things unfortunately came together at the wrong time. But broadly speaking, it's still a diversifying asset class that should be part of most investors' portfolios. So I hope that we'll see people seek to deploy more assets into insurance risk. But the entire financial markets needs to start re-emerging because that's been also a negative pull down in terms of investors' ability to invest in insurance risk. You know, new capital has come in. Various promises have been made about the returns that can be achieved. And I think in a lot of cases, those returns have not been achieved. So whilst I think there's a growing interest in coming back into the market and things are looking more attractive for investors, I think there's a little bit of show me the money. Yeah, um, we've we've heard these voices of things improving for the last five years. It didn't quite work. So my suspicion, and this is only my my personal suspicion, is that we'll need to see everybody's year end numbers and maybe their Q1 numbers, and investors say, well, actually. It really is working this time. If a very large, globally diversified reinsurer comes through a tough 2022 and still posts a profit and is now also able to report that they've increased prices by 20%, then presumably at that point, the investors will unfold their arms and get their checkbooks out. That's certainly the hope. (laughs) That's certainly the hope. Let's leave the big macro picture alone for a while and see what happened on the ground. This was the first genuinely hard reinsurance market since 2006, and it put relationships under extreme stress. It also put reinsurers' claims of leadership to the test for the first time in a long time. Reinsurers were presented with an opportunity to increase their showing and a chance to step up in the hour of their client's greatest need. How did they fare? Who differentiated themselves positively and whose reputations took a hit? Who cemented their relationships and gained goodwill? And who might have stored up trouble for the future by doing the opposite? 
I think that these next exchanges are really fascinating. Let's start with three quick clips from David Flandreau, followed by David Preeb, and then an exchange with James Vickers to round off. If you're a reinsurer this year, you had a big opportunity to help your clients. And there were some who did, and I'm sure that clients will remember and appreciate that. Again, we, we can go into the details of limits, attachment points, exclusions, and there was lots of back and forth. There was a, the, the renewal was late. It was frustrating for a lot of students. In the end, the market cleared, and there were carriers that did come to the table and place the cover. In many cases, sedents could co-insure. They could come into those limits. They could actually retain a bit more. They could partner with their reinsurers and get through the renewal. And where there was that partnership, where there was that back and forth, that sense of working together, there were really successful renewals. Where it was adversarial and people were waiting and playing games and having standoffs, I think that that's where the frustration came through. I think that the European reinsurers probably gained some ground this time, certainly in Europe, certainly with the trapped capital that was taking place in third-party capital markets and vis-a-vis, uh, you know, just big traditional balance sheets. Even though some of those traditional balance sheets were significantly impaired, I saw examples of big Europeans that were able to come in. Let's not forget that we've been doing this business together for 50 years. We can work together. This is not the only year that we're going to renew the business and we can move on with things. If you had that kind of attitude and those types of relationships, and certainly that there was room for the traditional market to gain ground this year, given what was happening or not happening in third-party capital markets. You learn a lot about a counterparty when they're under stress. And now we, I suppose we've learned something about some of our counterparties that perhaps we didn't know before. Yeah. I think a lot of our clients said, hmm, you know, that behavior is interesting. I thought that we had a core partnership strategy here, and it's not feeling like a core partnership. So, you know, based on experience in past dislocated markets, students remember those reinsurers that stepped up and provided solutions and worked with them to trade forward. And there were very many difficult conversations at this renewal. So some of those best relationships were tested, and some of them probably were tested that they might have damaged their go-forward prospects. But overall, I think everyone sort of realized that, you know, we need to maintain a healthy reinsurance market. It's in everyone's best interest. And the majority of the market did come together. So, But those people that actually switched from, I'm a core reinsurer of yours, and I'm there to support you to know my way or the highway, I don't think they're going to have an easy path back in. The truth is, I think that there are fewer reinsurers than we would like to imagine who have true confidence in their underwriting pricing models. Um, some of the larger and mid-sized sophisticated reinsurers, they do have their own internal models. They've got their own view of their own portfolios, and they're quite confident. And if they look at the prices, and the prices are at, or in many cases, above what their internal models say, they're very happy to write. So from a strategic point of view, was it, it was a real differentiator? Obviously, this is, we've had previous markets where it's easy to find a consensus. This time, it was harder to find a consensus because you had to have the absolute courage of your own convictions and the confidence in your own pricing. So was it time that those underwriters really differentiated themselves and presumably got to increase the market share on the kind of contracts that they really wanted? I think it's what clients appreciated were those reinsurers who were prepared to stick to the courage of their own convictions, their own underwriting, and prepared to put up their capacity. And what we found was even if we at the end of the placements, we had some sort of shortfalls that needed to be filled in, 
Seeding companies were much happier to go back to the reinsurers who'd supported them initially, saying, thank you, you've given us our quotes, you've given us support, we need a little help to finish, can you write more? And a lot of them, particularly some of the big Europeans who have big balance sheets, who found the prices attractive were prepared to do that. There was certainly a number of buyers were very upset with a minority of reinsurers who were tactically holding back capacity, hoping to sell more expensive shortfalls. They made a principal decision, we are not going to use those people. We want you as our brokers to go back to those who've been more supportive. We threw all the pieces up in the end, it landed and the more traditional reinsurers ended up with a better position than they would have otherwise have been. I think so. I think this has been, I mean, if you look at where the major markets for business are, I think there's been a bit of a, a flow back towards some of the European markets. It's not to say that Bermuda has all been difficult because some of the Bermudan companies have behaved very well and have improved their positions with clients. But I think if you look at it on an overall basis, there's perhaps a bit of a move back to the European professionals. So big, traditional, and most likely European leaders stood up and gained market share and kudos, while those who played hardball, perhaps a little too hard, probably lost out. But what other winners were there? As pressure was applied, retro became harder to find, and net retentions rose almost everywhere, People had been telling me that facultative reinsurance had also stood up at this renewal. So I asked my three guests if they could corroborate this. This segment starts with James Vickers, moves on to David Preeb, and closes with David Flandre. I think that's true. I mean, it's interesting. If you look on the property cat side, you can bifurcate the market into US NatCat, European, and the rest of the world. US being the most difficult, then Europe, and then the rest of the world. If we look at property per risk business, there is no regional differentiation. There is a there is a, a global issue with the underperformance of property per risk business. And reinsurers are finding that class of business quite demanding to write. Um, there's also virtually no retrocession on the property per risk side. So you're not getting reinsurers writing huge lines. And that has been difficult. And yes, you're right. That has then forced or will forcing is beginning to force more facultative. Um, but the question is then who's writing that? You move into the, the DNF markets. They have their own protections. So there will be, there is this growth in facultative. The interconnection between the FAC and the treaty market was already quite strong. Yeah, And because we already saw it the last 24 months, a lot of primary companies were re-underwriting their portfolios, reducing line size. And so in the process, they were also lasering out certain exposures through the fact market, yep. um, either through a um, semi-automatic facility or on individual FAC. And that's only accelerated as treaty ranchers have started to impose limitations in terms of line size limitations, or I'm not going to cover political violence or war or terror or this. And so the fact market's been the place to address that coverage gap that's emerged from the treaty placements and, and deal with that on an individual facultative basis or on a more so on a semi-automatic fact solution. So in order for it to step up, there has to have actually been the appetite and the capital to back that. Yeah. And so it's been good to find that we found another pocket of capital that perhaps we didn't think that we had. It's there and we probably need to continue to look for more capital to support that because I think that 
the need in that market's only to expand. And so therefore, it may be just capital redeployment from what was previously earmarked into the treaty sector will be earmarked now to facultative opportunities. DNF capacity really came in at the end and showed that it could fill the gap left by retro, left by ILS. And that, that of course, is a big part of what we do here in Howden Ree. So I got a front row seat to that. We've got some DNF legends in the building, I know. I know. I think I just saw one. But uh, <laughs> there have been opportunities for traditional carriers to come through and service their clients in lieu of what used to be third-party capital, which didn't come to the fore, uh, particularly this year, or new startups or new funding. That's a really interesting development. I think I should probably do a fact special to investigate this further. But back to the podcast. The final question I wanted to ask was to get a sense of where we are likely to be looking forward to the next set of renewals in 2023. The answer is perhaps that a lot of the arguments on coverage may now have been settled, but pricing will depend And it will depend particularly on what position you are starting from. Because, of course, some markets were already correcting at the mid-year renewals in 2022. Here's James Vickers and then David Preeb. I think it's difficult to say generally. I mean, the most important thing is that it's going to be much easier to manage clients' expectations because there's now some clarity. We've had this difficult reset. And the fact that everything was terribly late, the market found its clearing price. So, I think the renewals will be much more orderly because everybody knows where we're coming from. I think in terms of price movement will depend very, very much by client and by market because some markets have had pretty poor results the last couple of years and have paid very substantial rate increases over a number of years. And so starting at a different position to maybe some of the other markets we saw at 1-1. You know, I believe at 1-1, reinsurers achieved structural and coverage improvements that they deemed necessary and as i said earlier probably exceeded their expectations that they had at the in the fall of 2022 if you go back to the june and july renewals they did experience significant adjustments in 2022 so that's going to be the question okay how this influenced the degree of movement needed in 2023 I think that's going to be determined on a client-to-client basis. The key things are structure. So many of those programs in mid-April and June already experienced retention moves then. Will the market support the current level or will they push it higher? Coverage-wise, you know, I think we were successful one one of maintaining the core coverage. So I think that's not going to be needed to be debated significantly, I hope. So you're not um, suddenly and, going to get reinsurers saying, hey, you know, this new top layer has to be wind only or yeah, that kind of stuff. And, and um, I, I think, you know, I hope we've been there, done that. And uh, people realize we need to con- maintain the viability and the importance of the traditional reinsurance product. And then pricing, I think it's going to be a matter of, okay, where does the current pricing sit relative to the ROE requirements of reinsurers to deploy their capital? And then the other piece will there be more capital to be deployed. So we've got a lot of work to do as we lead work now into the next phase. And so we'll see how that plays out. It's also worth giving the 2023 Florida renewal a quick specific mention. There was some hope held out from responders that the lost development of Hurricane Ian might be behaving a little better than some of its recent predecessors. David Preeb also held the recent Florida legislative changes as a potential major factor in improving the outlook for the key May and June negotiations. And that was a critical 
piece of legislature that the governor put through and to do a number of positive things to ensure that fraud was removed from the system, greater drive to stimulate mitigation across the state of Florida, and really provide a more solid foundation for a healthy insurance market. Did that and, make and a that, difference? Um, it was a critical difference that had it not been done, I think we would have had a very unstable market in Florida come May, June. I think we're going to still have a very challenged market in May and June in, in Florida, just because it's going to take time for the benefit of those changes to work through the system. I think a lot of people are going to be carefully watching how the losses are adjusted from Hurricane Ian. Yep. And hopefully we don't see a repeat of fraud and loss development. And if that's the case, I think they'll rebuild confidence in in supporting the Florida market in a bigger and more sustainable way. I hope my guests have given you a good handle on this year's reinsurance renewals. Here are some summarising parting shots that I've picked from each of them. First, a thought on a bruising sedent experience at 1-1 and the possible consequences from James Vickers. Then a macro capital-based analysis from David Flandreau. And finally, a call to arms from David Preeb. Thanks for listening and good luck in the brave new markets of 2023. This whole renewal season, as I hinted earlier, has been bruising for some buyers, probably more so for mid-sized and smaller companies who've not been in this position for maybe a generation or two, and they've found this very difficult to navigate. And there's going to be, I think, in some cases, some quite fundamental rethinking about why am I buying reinsurance, what's the purpose of buying reinsurance. And so there will be a lot of analysis and structural thinking during 2023. Equally, I think that there's going to be this move towards certain reinsurers who buyers have perceived to be helpful and understanding at a difficult time. The, the bond market doesn't care if your accountant is classifying these securities as available for sale or held to maturity. It's pricing your asset side where it's pricing it if we were to have a really big cat right now, as a mentor of mine used to say, it's always earthquake season. The sector's balance sheet is actually uniquely exposed in the context of the last two decades. You know, it really hasn't been this way in a persistent fashion since the early 2000s. So actually, we are in an environment right now where risk premia are heightened, where capital is depleted. But that also means, as you alluded to earlier, there's an opportunity to make excess returns on equity and even to create positive economic value add. And that's why I think it's time for capital to flow into the sector because of the opportunity and because actually there's a supply need. You know, I've been in the business 41 years now, and I think right now where we are in the market, market cycle, it stacks up to post KRW, post 9-11, post Andrew. And I think the pricing globally moved to a level that were equivalent, if not better than the KRW period. So it's a, it's a great opportunity. So that's your yeah. pitch for more capital, for more underwriters to get more capital and, and put it to work. Yeah. yeah. If someone doesn't want to put it to work in this market, they shouldn't be in this business. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here 
and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.